0: lot who are traveling, but I also do look out and see that we have a lot who are visiting, and we are uh, very um, encouraged to see you here this morning. If you are visiting especially, we encourage you to be back as as often as you're able. I do want to also put another plug in that um, if you do not already have lunch plans, or even if you do have lunch plans, we're going to have plenty of food, and I would encourage you because uh, we just had the collection of the saints, and it's very important for the saints to understand where that collection is being used for. It makes you a co Participant, We are workers together in these type of things. And so I encourage you, if you are able, to stay and eat with us and also see the Africa work and see what um, the collection of the saints is being used for. It's a true blessing to be be able to be a part of that. And if you are visiting, if you have not had the opportunity, please let us get to meet you and know you before you head out this morning. We want you to be back as often as you're able. Um, I've been given several opportunities um, in my lessons over the next month to preach lessons uh, from the book of Daniel, perhaps lessons that maybe I don't have time or I don't want to spend the time in the class to cover, but I would like to spend some time on because I think they're very important. One thing we did when we were studying Daniel chapter 2 last week is we noted that the kingdom uh, being prophesied there relates to the church of Christ. Uh, we mentioned it and we, we spoke of it in passing, but I wanted to see the, the um, New Testament proof, the proof from Scripture that the kingdom of Christ is the same as the church of Christ. And then we want to go back to Daniel chapter 2, and note something else in that context. If you go with me to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9. So what we want to begin with this morning is looking at evidences that the church of Christ is the same in scripture as the kingdom of Christ. I think one, uh, I think the greatest misconception oftentimes with the kingdom is that every time the kingdom is uh, listed that it refers to heaven. I think part of that has to do with the fact it's described as the kingdom of heaven on many occasions. Our scripture reading in Matthew 4 and verse 17, Jesus says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Uh, so it's very important to understand that the kingdom of heaven is not the same as heaven. The kingdom of heaven refers to the fact that it comes from heaven. It is of heaven. It is a heavenly kingdom. But what I want to see this morning is, scripturally speaking, it is for the most part in the New Testament referencing the church. The first thing I want to note as we look at this equality is that they came in the same way. The church and the kingdom came in the same way. So, for example, the, what, the first way in which they came the same is that they came during the same generation. The kingdom and the church came during the same generation. You have in Mark chapter 9, and verse 1, perhaps the best-known verse, And he said unto them, Verily I say unto you, that there be some of them that stand here, which shall not taste of death, that is, during their lifetime, till they have seen the kingdom of God come. We'll back, be back to the with power in a moment. But I want you to note that he, he specifically says the kingdom was going to come during their lifetimes, before they die. The them is very important in that context. And you can back up to Mark chapter 8, for example, verse 27. Jesus went out and his disciples into the towns of Caesarea. Or you see in verse 35, uh, sorry, verse uh, 34. And when he had called the people unto him with his disciples also he said unto them. And so the immediate context is his disciples. It would come during their lifetime. I would expect that, that the kingdom was going to come, and I would expect it would come during their generation. If you go with me in Matthew's account of these events, in Matthew chapter 16, in Matthew's account he adds one further bit of information to the exact same discussion being had in Mark chapter 9. In Matthew's account, in Matthew chapter 16, go with me to verse 18, Matthew 16 and verse 18, in the very occasion on which he said it was going to come during their lifetime, he also, in this context... Also says the words in verse 18, I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will, shall, future tense, build my church in the gates of hell or Hades, which we'll get back to in a moment also, shall not prevail against it. So I want you to note here that in this discussion of the kingdom, he also says, my church, I'm going to build it. The fact that it's future tense means in Matthew 16, at that point in time, the church had not been built yet. It was still in a future event. So I will know that in Matthew 16, if I use that as a bookend, the church has not come yet. And then when I find when the church is here, I know that it came somewhere in between those two bookends. We know it was going to come during their lifetime. In fact, if you go to Matthew 16, verse 28, Matthew 16, verse 28, in this very context that we read earlier, he says, Verily I say to you, there be some standing here which shall not taste of death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. In this very context, it talks about the kingdom has not come yet, and the church has not come yet, but we know both are coming. And both are going to come during their generation, the disciples' generation. And so I know if I set that other book in in Acts chapter 2, verse 47, which we'll read in a moment, but if I set that other book in in Acts 2, and verse 47, where the Lord is adding people to the church, I know that between Matthew, somewhere between Matthew 16 and Acts 2, 47, the church came. And I also know, based on what we're studying this and the kingdom also had come. What we also noted in Mark nine and verse one that the kingdom was going to come with power, and the, the the fact that the kingdom was going to come with power, and the church was going to come with power, indicates also that they're going to come in the same way. They were going to come in the same uh, generation, but they also were going to come with signs of power. Go with me to Luke's account, Luke chapter twenty four. Luke chapter twenty four. The church and the kingdom are going to come during the same generation. The church and the kingdom are going to come with the same signs of power. So in Luke chapter 24, after his resurrection, immediately before his ascension, you have, beginning verse 46, Luke 24, beginning verse 46, and he said unto them, Thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. Isn't that interesting that he said the preaching of Forgiveness of sins and repentance was going to begin at Jerusalem. And he's going to tie that to in a moment what's going to happen there also at the day of Pentecost. Ye are witnesses of these things. And behold, in verse 49, I send the promise of my Father upon you. Whatever this promise was, he's referencing here, was something that was going to come upon them. And in order to have that promise of the Father come upon them, they had to tarry in the city of Jerusalem. Until ye be endued, here's the relation of that promise, endued or clothed with power from on high. And so he links this coming in Jerusalem, the location, as well as the preaching of, of repentance and remission of sins. And he also links that to power coming upon these apostles. That was all, all within this context, which we saw in Mark chapter 9, verse 1, was going to come when the kingdom came. If you go with me to Acts chapter 1, Acts chapter 1 and Luke is picking up where he left off at the end of the book of Luke. He picks up now in Acts chapter 1, and he says, The former treaties have I made, O Theophilus, because he wrote the first one to the Theophilus, and now he's picking up where he st- stopped off. He, he says in verse 1, he stopped off with what Jesus began to do and to teach, but now he's writing not what Jesus began to do and teach now. Now he's writing the account of the growth of the church um, according to the, the acts or the actions of some of the apostles. In Acts chapter 1, go with me to verse 3, Acts 1 and verse 3. On this very occasion before he ascends, on the very occasion where he said you're going to be endued with power, he says in verse 3, To whom also he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs, being seen of them forty days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. He's preaching and talking to them about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God coming. It is the most imminent it had ever been. He was preaching it in Matthew 4 and verse 17, but now the apostles... He says, look, it's almost here. It's about to come. In fact, he's going to say, stay in Jerusalem. He says, being assembled together with them, he commanded that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which saith he, ye have heard of me. There's that promise again, links it to the baptism of the Holy Ghost in verse 5, which was going to result with the power that we read in Luke chapter 24. All these things were going to happen in Jerusalem not many days from then, and he says, Stay here, that power that was promised is going to come. Also, this kingdom is going to come, as he preaches the kingdom. And of course, we know it, it goes me to Acts chapter 2, verse 4. Acts 2 and verse 4. On the day of Pentecost, they were all filled with the Holy Ghost. There's that baptism of the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the power gave the Spirit gave them utterance. There's that power disp- being displayed that was promised unto the apostles. Uh, to happen in Jerusalem, where, where where this is happening, you see this power being displayed now from the Holy Ghost upon the apostles. Go down to verse six. Now, when this was noised abroad, a multitude came together and were confounded because that every man heard them speak in his own language. There's that, that uh, issuing of those, those miraculous gifts in Acts two, and verse seventeen. Acts two, and verse seventeen. They ask about what's happening on this occasion. And, and he reveals in verse 16, this is a fulfillment of what the prophet Joel said was going to happen. And then he quotes in verse 17. And it shall come to pass in the last days. Please, please remember, in Daniel chapter 2, the last days was the exact time reference that Daniel gave for the coming of the kingdom. It was going to happen in those last days. And he says, also Joel prophesied about the last days, the last age, the Christian age. And this is exactly what's happening here. I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams. There's that power and manifestation of the Holy Spirit being displayed. It was coming when the kingdom came. It's coming as the church comes in Acts chapter 2. They're both coming with power. And that's why when you get to verse 47, as we quoted earlier. Praising God and having favor with all the people, the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. For so those who are saved are added to the church. The church has now come. The church is here. It came in Jerusalem. I was prophesied. The kingdom came in Jerusalem. They came during their lifetimes, and they came with power. Because the two are the same. Go with me now to Second Thessalonians chapter one. 2 Thessalonians chapter one. The next thing I want to note is that they both brought the same persecution. Second Thessalonians chapter one. The kingdom and the church brought the same persecution. And Second Thessalonians chapter one begins with me in verse four. 2 Thessalonians 1, beginning verse 4. So that we ourselves glory in you and the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions. Whose? The churches of God's persecutions. He says, all your persecution tribulation that ye endure, the churches endure, which is a manifest token of the righteous judgment of God, that ye may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God, for which ye also suffer. Do you see they were suffering persecution for the church? In the very next verse, he says, you're suffering persecution for the kingdom. They both suffered the same persecution for the church and for the kingdom. I will will note that the kingdom, if the kingdom is heaven, a Jew would not persecute someone for believing in heaven. The Jews believed in heaven. The persecution they were receiving was not because of heaven. They were receiving persecution because of the preaching of the kingdom of God, the church. That's why they were receiving persecution. It was the same persecution. Look in Revelation 1. Revelation 1. Revelation 1, and go with me to verse 4. Revelation 1, beginning verse 4. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you and peace from him which is, and which was, and which is to come, and from the seven spirits which are before his throne. Notice the audience here is the seven churches, the seven churches of Asia in particular. You go down a little bit further in this context to Revelation 1, verse 9. I, John, also, who am your brother and companion in tribulation and in the kingdom. That is, we are sharing not only in the kingdom together, because God has made the churches, in verse 6, kings and priests, a kingdom and a priesthood. He made the churches a kingdom and a priesthood. He also says, not only are we brothers and companions in this kingdom, we are also brothers and companions in the tribulation. The persecution in this kingdom. The very thing they were being persecuted, the churches were being persecuted for, was because they were part of the kingdom. They suffered the exact same persecution. In fact, when you go through the book of Acts, I would note how many times that Paul defends himself at the hands of the Jews, and the Jews would accuse Paul of being a part of a sect of Judaism. The Nazarenes, a sect of the Nazarenes. And what Paul would have to to point out is, It's not possible that I'm just a break off of Jews because if I was a break off of Jews, the Jews would not be persecuting me. The very fact the Jews are persecuting me means that I'm part of something different than Judaism. He was suffering persecution for the church, for the kingdom, not because he was a Jew and that he was following something that was still Jewish. They suffered different persecutions. And the fact that they suffered different persecutions meant they were a part of different things. But the church and the kingdom suffered the same persecution because they were the same thing. Go with me now to Ephesians chapter 5. So they suffered the same persecutions. Ephesians chapter 5. I also want to note that they had the same head. The church and the kingdom had the same head. They had the same leader. They had the same ruler. Not different ones. Ephesians chapter 5 begins with me in verse 22. Ephesians 5, beginning verse 22. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the savior of the body. We'll be back to in a moment. The body and the church are the same thing. But I want you to note very explicitly here that the head of the church, the ruler of the church, the one in charge of the church is Jesus Christ. Very clearly identified here. It's cl- identified in many other verses. I want to go to this one. Go me to 1 Timothy chapter 1. Who's the head or the ruler of the kingdom? If it's the same one, that would seem to lend itself towards them being the same group. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, begins me in verse 16. 1 Timothy chapter 1, beginning verse 16. How be it? For this cause I obtain mercy that in me first Jesus Christ. Might show forth all long-suffering, for a pattern to them which should hereafter believe on Him, Jesus Christ, the life everlasting. Now unto the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, which by the way, proves he shares in deity. The only wise God be honor and glory forever and ever Amen. Who is the ruler of the kingdom? The king is. The king is the ruler of the kingdom. And if I can identify who the king is, I can identify who is the ruler of the kingdom. Jesus Christ. In fact, if you go with me to 1 Timothy chapter 6, he's going to say it again. 1 Timothy chapter 6, go with me to verse 14. 1 Timothy 6, beginning verse 14. That thou keep this commandment without spot, unrebukable, until the appearing of our Lord, Master, Jesus Christ, which in his times he shall show who is the blessed and only potentate, is a ruler. Only Potentate, only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords. I can well imagine if the, the church exists simultaneously beside the kingdom and the church has a ruler that is Jesus Christ, if Jesus Christ is the only potentate, then he must be the only ruler of the kingdom also. That is absolutely the case. Christ is the ruler or the head of the church, like he's a ruler or head or king over the kingdom because they're the same. Look to me in Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. So they came in the same way, they brought the same persecution, they had the same head or ruler, they also have the same members. The church and the kingdom have the same members. In Colossians chapter 1, begin with me in verse 12. Colossians 1, beginning verse 12. Giving thanks unto the Father which hath made us meet, or appropriate. It is okay for us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints who are in light. There's an inheritance for the saints. We'll get back to that in a moment. But he's referenced that they can be partakers of it. Who, di- who can be partakers of it? Those who have been delivered from the power of darkness and have been translated into the kingdom of his dear son. Who are inheritors? Those who have been translated into the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Those, those can. The partakers of the inheritance are those who have been translated, past tense, into the kingdom. That is, those who are in the kingdom of are those who are called saints here, and also those who are partaking in the, 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 the light, and those who are partaking ultimately in the inheritance. Go to in Colossians 1 and verse 18. Colossians 1 and verse 18. He then, in this very context, identifies that he is head of the body of the church. He identifies the body of Christ, the same as the church of Christ. The body of Christ has the same head as the church of Christ, just like the church of Christ is the same head as the kingdom of Christ. It's the same group of people but i want to note in verse 18 there's this conversion factor the body of christ equals the church of christ i want you to go a little bit further in colossians 1 down to verse 21 colossians 1 verse 21 and you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and approval in this sight the very ones who've been translating to the kingdom have also been reconciled into the body. Those same people. And we know based on verse 18, the body is the church. Therefore, the very same people who have been translated into the body have been reconciled into the church. It's the same group of people. The same group of people there. Go meet Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews 12 and verse 23. Hebrews 12 and verse 23. We'll be back to this verse in a moment again but Hebrews 12 and verse 23 in that contrast between Mount Sinai and Mount Zion Mount Sinai being the law that was the old law received Mount Zion being the new law received the New Testament to which they stood at in verse 22 you have come to that mountain in verse 23 he also describes synonymous expressions to the general assembly and church of the firstborn which are written in heaven we'll get back to that written in heaven in a moment But he describes that those who have come to Mount Zion, who have received the new law, which went forth from Zion, are described here as the church of the firstborn. Now in this very context, you get down to verse 28. Wherefore, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved. Do you see how synonymous those two things are? Those who are at this mountain are a part of the church, and also those who are at this mountain have received a kingdom which cannot be moved. It's the same people, the same members, Of the church are the members of the kingdom. Go with me to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. Number 5, they have the same entrance. The same entrance is to the church, is the same entrance into the kingdom. I expect that if they're the same group of the same people, then I expect that they would be the same entrance. You wouldn't enter into the kingdom in a different way that you enter into the church. In John chapter 3, go with me to verse 1. John 3, beginning verse 1. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that thou art teacher, come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou thou doest, except God be with him, thus identifying his authority. Therefore, Jesus can go into salvation once the authority is established. In verse 3, Jesus answered and said to him, Verily I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That's not what he asked or what he said. But Jesus identified, oh, you recognize my authority, let's get to salvation then. Let's get to the kingdom then. And that's what he does. He says you have to be born again to see the kingdom of God. Or to enter into the kingdom of God as he's going to say in verse 5. You have to be born again to enter into the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said unto him, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of spirit. You have to be reborn. You have to spiritually be born of water and of spirit born again is the ver- is what's said in verse three he cannot enter into the kingdom of god therefore i know entrance into the kingdom depends on rebirth being born again that rebirth involves the spirit that rebirth involves uh water those are both involved in this rebirth in john chapter three because his question is i can't do it when i'm old yes because you're not i'm not telling you to be reborn physically you have to be reborn spiritually When you are old. And so I would expect entering into the church to be the same. Go with me to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. And go with me to verse 25. Ephesians 5 and verse 25. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, the church, that he might present it, the church, to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such. But that should be holy and without blemish. The context is the church. The the beauty of the church, what God did to uh, what Christ did in order to purchase the church, to buy that church with his own blood. And you back up to verse 23, we saw that that is he is the head of the church. Verse 24, the church is, is subject unto Christ, to be submissive unto Christ. And then you back up to verse 26, that he might sanctify and cleanse it, the church, with the washing of water. By the word, the exact same entrance. How is the church going to be sanctified? How are the people who are in the church going to be sanctified? It's going to be involved the Spirit's word as well as water. It's the exact same entrance. Into the kingdom, you enter in the same way as you enter into the church because they're one and the same. Look at Matthew chapter 16, another evidence of this. Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. When did entrance into the church and entrance into the kingdom begin? What allowed entrance into the church and what allowed entrance into the kingdom? In Matthew chapter 16, begin with me again in verse 18. Matthew 16, beginning verse 18. And I say unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock, that is that that, uh, bedrock, the foundation, the words of Christ, I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That is, Christ was going to build his church. And I will give unto thee, the apostles, the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Why bring up, when you're discussing building the church, why bring up the fact that you are giving them some power to unlock the door into the kingdom? Does that mean the apostles were given the power to unlock the door into heaven? Or does that mean when he builds this church, he's going to give them the power and the authority to unlock the door into the church, into the kingdom? He said, I'll give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. That entrance into the kingdom and that entrance into the church were both going to be administered by the power that God gave to his apostles. Therefore, even though the ability to enter in came in Acts chapter 2 by the preaching of the apostles who had the power of the Holy Spirit in order to unlock the door into the church or unlock the door into the kingdom. They're one and the same. The entrance in are the same. Look at Acts 14. Acts chapter 14. Acts chapter 14. Go with me to verse 26. Acts 14 and verse 26. And then sailed to Antioch from whence they had been recommended to the grace of God for the work which they fulfilled. And when they were come... And had gathered the church together. They rehearsed all that God had done with them and how he, the apostles, in particular Paul in this example, had opened the door of faith unto the Gentiles. Where did he get the power and authority to open the door into the church who he's talking to here? The churches were gathered together. Where did he get the power and authority to open the door into the church to the Gentiles? Where did Peter get the authority in Acts 10 to open the door of the church into the Gentiles? From God, that's where they got it. When you open the door into the church, you open the door into the kingdom. And as you enter in, you're entering the exact same thing by the power and authority given to them. Look in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. We may miss sometimes because we're only looking at the English, we may miss further evidence of this. But if you look at the Greek, there is even more evidence for this. For example, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 12, 1 Thessalonians 2 and verse 12. That ye, the ye here is the church at Thessalonica, but we'll see this in the context, that ye would walk worthy of God who hath called you. You remember what ecclesia is? Ecclesia, the Greek word for church, is those who are called out. This is the verb of that. So he's simply referencing those who have been called out. That is a reference to those who are part of the church. The called out, who hath called you, the, the called out, the church, unto or into. His kingdom and glory. Exact same entrance. You're called out of sin and called into the kingdom. You're called out of sin, you're called translated into the church. It's the exact same entrance. You could go to Greek word, verse after verse, where the Greek points this out. You've been called out, Kaleo, out of sin into the kingdom. Because they're the same. They have the same entrance. Go with me to Isaiah chapter 60. Isaiah chapter 60. It's also notable that the church and the kingdom have the same end, E-N-D. The church and the kingdom have the same end to look forward to if you're righteous. I want to go back to Isaiah chapter 60 to point out some things here. Isaiah chapter 60, go with me to verse 1 to get the context of this prophecy. Isaiah 60, beginning verse 1. Arise, shine, for thy light, that is the city's light, Zion's light, is come and the glory of the Lord is risen upon thee, Zion, for behold, the darkness shall cover the earth and gross darkness the people, but the Lord shall rise upon thee and his glory shall see, be seen upon thee. Zion, the Lord's going to rise and the Gentiles shall come to Zion's light. The Gentiles shall come to thy light and the kings the brightness of thy rising. The context here is that future prophesied kingdom that we've been studying in the book of Daniel which is fulfilled in the church. He talks about the Gentiles being issued into this exact same kingdom, this exact same church in Isaiah chapter 60. That's this context in Isaiah 60. In fact, if you go to the end of verse 6, go down to the end of verse 6, they shall bring gold and incense, and they shall show forth the praise of the Lord. Who shall, in verse 6, the Gentiles. What's interesting in this context is, for so long, it's been the case that, that the people of God have wanted to keep the Gentiles out That's been the thing for the Old Testament. Keep the Gentiles out. Resist the Gentiles. Don't allow the Gentiles to come in. Isaiah is prophesying at future time wherein, when the Lord arises, that the Gentiles are going to be gladly received in as a part of them. This is being fulfilled in the church in Isaiah chapter 60, or the kingdom of Christ in Isaiah chapter 60. It was going to be fulfilled in them that the Gentiles would be allowed in also. I want you to also note that show forth the praises of the Lord in verse 6. That's 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. And Peter quotes it and applies it to the church, the priesthood, the Christians. 1 Peter 2, verse 9. That's exactly what the context here is. Now within that context, I want you to go a little bit further in Isaiah 60. Now go down to verse 11. So now we know the context is that kingdom to come, the church, that the Gentiles will be issued into and no longer kept out of. And in verse 11, Therefore thy gates... Zion shall be open continually. Open to whom? The context is open to Gentiles. That's the context. Whereas in the past, they might close their gates if they see the Gentiles coming. The context here is in the future, there comes a time when you're going to gladly open the gates to invite the Gentiles into what you're a part of. He says the, the gate shall be open continually. They shall not be shut day nor night. If you study the history of Jerusalem, they would shut the, the gate to Jerusalem at night. No one could come in and out at night. But he says, this, this city, this future kingdom that we're talking about in Isaiah 60, the door is not going to be shut. It's always going to be open, and the Gentiles can come in if they would do what was required to come in. He says, they shall be open, continually shall not be shut day or night, that men may bring unto thee the forces of the Gentiles. Let the Gentiles come in. This is not speaking in physical sense, in a spiritual sense. Let the Gentiles come into this. That's the context of Isaiah chapter 60. I want you to go with me to Revelation 21 now. Revelation 21. We're talking about the same end. The same end to the church is going to be the end to the kingdom. We saw in Isaiah chapter 60. I want to note in that context, we're dealing with that church, that kingdom, that very one that we're studying this morning. Go down with me to verse 24, Revelation 21 and verse 24. And the nations of them which are saved. That doesn't make sense in the Old Testament because there's one nation in the Old Testament, the Jews. But this description is nations who can be saved shall walk in the light of it. and the it there is Zion, by the way. And the kings of the earth do bring their glory and honor into it. And the gates of it shall not be shut all by day. That's the exact quote from Isaiah 60. We know the, the fulfillment of it. And so in the context, he's referencing that, that very prophecy in Isaiah chapter 60. He says, the gates of it shall not be shut all at all by day, for there shall be no night there. The light of Jesus Christ is there. They shall bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. And there shall be in no wise enter anything that defileth, neither whatsoever worketh abomination or maketh a lie. You're not entering in this place if you want to continue to work abominations, if you want to continue to be a liar. There's no entrance into this city. There's no entrance into Zion with that because you have to have repented to enter into this one and have those past sins washed away. And look what he says at the end of it. But here's who does, who is allowed in. They who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Now, sometimes people look towards the future for that, but what the Bible is going to show, as we'll look at in a moment, your name can be written in the Lamb of Life right now. In fact, if you are a righteous Christian, your name is written in that book right now. Why? Because Gentiles, that's us, have been issued into by what Jesus Christ has done. Zion, that spiritual Jerusalem, Christians have been been allowed to enter into it. Now, I want you to go with me to Philippians chapter 4 we'll be back here in a moment, but Philippians chapter 4, he says those whose whose names are written in the the Lamb's book of life, those are who enter into this kingdom, the church. In Philippians chapter 4 and verse 3, Philippians 4 and verse 3, and I entreat thee also, true, true yoke fellow, help those women which labor with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and with other my fellow laborers whose names are written in the book of life. Present tense. Whose names are written in the book of life? Those who are preaching the gospel just like Paul was. My fellow laborers, their names are currently written in the book of life. How can they have their names written in the book of life? Because of what Christ Jesus did. They can now be issued into and have their names written in the book of life. They have that end, life as their end. Look in Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. And go with me to verse 20. Luke 10 and verse 20. Jesus having sent the 70 out, the 70 come back, and they're rejoicing that that the demons were being cast out by the the power that Jesus gave them. They're rejoicing over it. And look what Jesus says in Luke 10 and verse 20. Notwithstanding in this rejoice, not. Don't rejoice that the spirit is subject unto you. That does display power, but that's not where true joy comes from. But rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. That's why you should rejoice. Not future tense right now. If you are a faithful child of God, your name is already written there. That's why Revelation 2 and 3 makes sense when he says your name can be blotted out from the book. It doesn't make any sense if their names aren't there to blot them out. But he says your name can be taken from that book if you don't repent of your sin. But currently, if you are righteous, your name are written in that book right now. Eternal life is waiting for those whose names are written there. The kingdom has that to look forward to. Now go to Hebrews chapter 12. Go back to Hebrews 12. So that context was the kingdom. Those who have entered the kingdom have their names written in the Lamb's book of life. They have that end to look forward to. And lo and behold, in Hebrews 12 and verse 23, he's going to say the same thing about the church. Hebrews 12 and verse 23. You've come to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven. It's the same group. They have the same end. The kingdom has that end, and the church has that end. It's the same end for them. It's the same hope for them, the same thing to look forward to. In fact, go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The church has that to look forward to. They have eternal life to look forward to if their names are written in the book of life. In 1 Corinthians 15, and go with me down to verse 24. 1 Corinthians 15, and verse 24, we will identify that the kingdom also has that to look forward to. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 24, Then cometh the end, when he, Jesus, shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. And by the way, the last enemy is not the devil, that, was, that the devil was defeated. the cross, Hebrews 2 and verse 14, 1 John 3 and verse 8. The last enemy is death in verse 26. Until death, until there's one more person in the grave, Jesus Christ is reigning as king. At, when that final person comes out of the grave, when that final soul comes out of the grave to the final resurrection, that kingdom is going to be taken by the Son and given back to the Father who gave it to him. That's what's being described in Daniel 7, 13 and 14. He describes here an end. An end of the kingdom is being delivered to the Father in heaven. That's the end of the kingdom. Just like it was the end of the church, it is also the end of the kingdom. The kingdom is going to deliver back to the Father in heaven. And in fact, if you go to verse 50, and this is where sometimes people get confused, there are times in the New Testament wherein the kingdom is referencing the kingdom after the Judgment day. And the most common description that's going to be used in those verses is found in verse 50. Now this, I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God neither doth corruption inherit incorruption the context in this is after the kingdom has been delivered to the Father that's when that eternal inheritance begins and so most often when you see the kingdom being referenced and it's being referenced as a matter of inheritance now you're talking about the kingdom that is inheriting the eternal kingdom but for the predominant use of the kingdom you're talking about the church on earth At the final judgment day, that church, the kingdom will be given back to the Father where the inheritance, the eternal inheritance begins. And flesh and blood is not there. That's what this verse says. Flesh and blood is not there when that that final inheritance begins. Go with me back to Daniel chapter 2 now. Daniel chapter 2. That being the case, and I know we mentioned it very briefly in Bible class, and we went on because I did not want to take this amount of time to describe it in Bible class, but I knew that I could Uh, We could go over it in a sermon. I want to remind us the fact that the church and the kingdom are the same. That being the case, in Daniel 2 and verse 44, Daniel 2 and verse 44, we have studied things like in Bible class, in the days of these kings, the days of those kings being the Roman king in that immediate context, meaning the church began under the kingdom of Rome, just like the kingdom of Christ began in the kingdom of Rome during their lifetimes, as we saw that. Uh, In the days of these kings, shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom? Now we have looked at in verse 44 that will not be left to other people. We studied the fact in Bible class where that references that this kingdom is not going to be given to non-children of God people. It's going to be given to only those who are children of God. Daniel chapter 7 spells that out for us also. So we looked at that one. We also looked at it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms. The way in which the church of Christ was going to consume all these other kingdoms. And we saw in the context, if you back up to verse 34... It's the stone who is going to be doing that, not the thing the stone grew into. The stone, which was Jesus Christ, is the one who is going to be consuming and destroying these kingdoms by the word of His mouth and by His death on the cross. He was going to be defeating these other kingdoms. And then Christ and His work would grow into that great mountain, the kingdom, the church of Christ. But what we did not spend time on in Dan 2, verse 44, which I want to end with this morning, in those days shall these kings, the kings, shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. Contrast that with the kingdom he's referencing here. The kingdom they have been just been referencing will be consumed, but the kingdom he's talking about here will never be destroyed. Or look what he says at the end of that verse it shall stand forever. What shall stand forever? The kingdom of Christ shall stand forever, which means the church of Christ will stand forever. That is a prophecy. And if God fulfills prophecy, and if God keeps his promises, I know that the church of Christ is going to stand forever. That is a promise of God. If that does not happen, if there's some point in time in which the church of Christ no longer stands, and is no longer here, which is what the Mormons teach, then you reach the point where God is a liar. But God is not a liar. The church of Christ is always going to stand, is what the Bible says. I want you to go with me to uh, to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew 16. Matthew chapter 16. And go with me to verse 18. So the thing I want to focus in on as we conclude is that the church of Christ, God has promised the church of Christ will always stand. It will not be destroyed. It will stand forever. In Matthew 16 verse 18, we'll read it again. I say also unto thee that thou art Peter upon this rock, I will build my church. And the gates of Hades, the gate of Hades is death the way into Hades, is by dying. So he's saying here, death shall not prevail against it. Shall not prevail against the church. Or verse 19, shall not prevail against the kingdom. If the death of the Son of God cannot prevail against the kingdom, cannot prevail against the church, cannot prevent the church, if the death of the Son of God cannot consume or destroy the church, nothing can consume or destroy the church. If the death of the Son of God can't do it, nothing can. Go with me to Revelation chapter 12. Revelation 12. And go with me to verse 4. Revelation 12 and verse 4. The death of the Son of God was not going to prevent the church or bring down the church. And Revelation 12 begins with me in verse 4. And this, and his, that is the dragons, the devil's tail do the third part of the stars of heaven. If you go back to chapter 1 and verse 20, that's angels. In chapter 1 and verse 20, the stars of heavens are angels. So he drew some angels down with him and cast them to the earth. And the dragon the devil stood before the woman which was ready to be delivered for devour her child as soon as it was born. Talking about the birth of Jesus. I know this because in verse 5, she brought forth a man, child to rule all nations with the rod of iron. That's talking about Jesus. They went down to try to prevent the birth of Jesus. They were unsuccessful to preventing the, the birth of Jesus. In fact, it says in verse 6, they fled into the wilderness, which we know is exactly what happened. They were unsuccessful in preventing the birth of Jesus. The devil and his angels were. Go down with me to verse 17. The dragon was wroth with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. That means the devil was at war with the children of God. Those who keep the commandments of God is the church. The devil was at war with the church. Now, what I find out in Matthew chapter 16 is the death of the Son of God cannot defeat the church. What what about the devil? Does the devil have enough power to defeat the church? They went out to try to defeat the church in Revelation chapter 12. I want you to go with me to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. In verse 14. Hebrews 2 verse 14. But the devil in all of his power and I've told you before, it is my understanding, the devil has the second most amount of power of any being after God. But the devil, with all of his power, could not prevent or defeat the church. And in Hebrews 2, verse 14, not because of any of our power, it's because of what Jesus did. In Hebrews 2, verse 14, For as much as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he, Jesus, also himself, likewise, took part of the same flesh and blood, that through his death, through Jesus' death, he might destroy him, They had the power of death, which is our last enemy. The devil isn't, but death is. But the one who had power over it was the devil. And look what Jesus did. He might destroy him that had the power of death. That is the devil. Who destroyed the devil? Jesus did. When did he destroy it? When he took on flesh and blood and shed his blood and died on the cross. He destroyed the works of the devil. 1 John 3 and verse 8 says the same thing. It's called the works of the devil in 1 John 3 and verse 8. But Jesus Christ already defeated him. So if the death of the Son of God cannot prevail against the church, and the devil, with all of his power, cannot prevail against the church, I want you to understand this morning, man can't prevail against the church. Hopefully we all understand that by implication. If the death of the Son of God can't stop the church, and if the devil can't stop the church, then there's not a person alive today, nor has there ever been a person alive on the face of the earth that can stop the church. And I want us to all know that. Because God promised it's always going to stand. And if things much more powerful than men can't stop the church, then there's not a man on the face of the planet. Even if man joins hand in hand, and millions of men try to prevent and take down the church, he can't do it. Because God said it's always going to stand. Man cannot take down the church. Go me back to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. And that very context, wherein, in Hebrews 12 and verse 28, Hebrews 12 and verse 28, the context wherein, he says, "...wherefore we receive a kingdom which cannot be moved." But what about, what about wicked men? Can men remove the kingdom? What about the devil? Can he remove the kingdom? What about, what about the death of the Son of God? Can it remove the kingdom? The answer is no, no, no. It cannot. It cannot be removed. That is a promise of God. If you go on to the next chapter, since we've received that kingdom which cannot be removed... In chapter 13, in verse 6, So that we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear what man shall do unto me. Why not? Because the devil's been defeated. Sin's been defeated. There's no man that's more powerful than the devil. There's no man that's more powerful than the death of the Son of God. And if they can't stop the church, no man can stop the church. And so Hebrews 13, verse 6 says, Don't be afraid of man. I want to remind us especially right now, As the world around us maybe becomes more and more corrupt, I want to remind us, scripturally speaking, it doesn't matter how corrupt man gets, he cannot destroy the church because God has promised it will stand forever. No man can defeat it. Go to Ephesians chapter 3 as we conclude. Ephesians chapter 3. I think sometimes we get worried about things that are impossible to happen. Can people be corrupt? Yes, can people get more wicked? Absolutely. They wax more and more wicked the Bible says. Can these wicked men destroy the church? The answer is no. I don't have to worry about that. I shouldn't spend any time worrying about that at all. No fear, no time, no worry, no anxiety because it can't be done. The Bible has promised it. In Ephesians chapter 3 beginning verse 10, Ephesians 3 beginning verse 10, to the intent that now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be made known the church the church is the demonstration of the manifold, the apparent wisdom of God. God's wisdom is displayed and made manifest in the church. Ephesians 3, verse 10. According to the eternal purpose, that is, the church was in His eternal purpose. The eternal purpose which He purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord. The church was in His eternal purpose, and it has manifested God's wisdom in that. And you get down to verse 20, and He says this in Verse 20. Now unto him that is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that worketh in us, the church, unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. That's how long we in the church can give glory to God. Till the end. Why? Because the church is going to be here till the end. And you can can apply all the worldly wisdom and all the world and put it all together, and come up with a plan to end the church. But God's wisdom is greater than that. And he has promised it's always going to stand. If you're here this morning and you're not a part of the church, you enter into the kingdom and enter into the church the exact same way. You have to be born again. In order to be born again, I have to understand the role that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, played in that birth, in that rebirth. The Son of God took on flesh, Hebrews 2, verse 14. In fact, He took on flesh for the purpose of dying, Hebrews 2, verse 9. Having died on the cross and been resurrected, He, as the Son of God, has then given power over sin. And we can this very morning, having confessed that Jesus is Son of God and are repented of, my, of our past sins, we can take you this very hour and baptize you into Jesus Christ, Galatians 3, verse 27. Galatians 3, verse 27, he says, Those who have been baptized into Christ have put on... That's in duo. The same Greek word we saw in Luke 24, where they said he said in Jerusalem you'll be in duo, endued with power. That was the result of the Holy Spirit baptism. You can now be in duo, clothed with Christ today. Not power with Christ, which is far better. You don't have to have miracles, do do miracles to make it to heaven. You have to be in Christ to make it to heaven. And we can take this very hour and baptize you into Christ, and you can be clothed with in duo. Clothed with Christ this very day. Galatians 3, verse 27. Having those past sins washed away. Acts 22, and verse 16. And the Lord having added you to the church. Acts 2, and verse 47. 1 Corinthians 12, and verse 13. The Lord having added you to the body, which is the church. The exact same thing. Colossians 1, and verse 18. Being translated into the kingdom. Exact same thing. If you're here this morning and you're a member of the church, I just want to remind us all that Daniel 2, and verse 44 has a promise in it. And that promise is the church is always going to be here. I don't have to be afraid of that. I don't have to worry about that. I don't have to anxiety over that until the end of time, wherein we will all receive the same end as those who are in the kingdom, because we're the same group of people. We have eternal life to look forward to. We may lose our physical life in this in this world because of the kingdom. That may happen, but the kingdom is not going to be brought down. That is a promise of God. And if you're here this morning, maybe you've been doubting. Maybe you've had fear. Maybe you've been anxious about that. Just be reassured. If it's something that's caused you to maybe go into sin. Make that right with God. The time is now also as we stand as we sing.